Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybox together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. If you tell a stranger that you talk to yourself, you're likely to be written off as eccentric. I can put my hand up right now and say that I do that most often than not. And the looks that I've gotten from people when I say that, it's it's a bit shameful. But anyway, the truth is we all have a little voice in our head. Most often than not, that little voice can control a lot of our actions and decisions that we make on on any given day. Chatter is a groundbreaking book that my guest today wrote. His name is Dr. Ethan Cross. Now, Dr. Ethan is one of the world's leading experts on controlling the conscious mind. He's an award-winning professor and best-selling author in the University of Michigan's top-ranked psychology department and its Ross School of Business as well. He studies how the conversations people have with themselves impact their health, performance, decisions, and relationships. Ethan was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. He attended the University of Pennsylvania where he was elected to uh, Phi Beta Kappa, Phi Beta Kappa, (laughs) if I'm saying that correctly, and graduated magna cum laude uh, after earning his PhD in psychology from Columbia University. Ethan completed a postdoctoral fellowship in social affective neuroscience to learn about the neural systems and support self-control. He moved to the University of Michigan in 2008 where he founded the Emotion and Self-Control Laboratory. Ethan's research has been published in many, many different articles and magazines. He's been on a number of podcasts that I absolutely love, Lewis Howes in particular, which is a great in-depth conversation. Highly encourage you guys to check that one out. But Ethan is the best-selling author, the national best-selling author, and I'm I um I can say this without a shadow of a doubt. This book is going to go absolutely crazy internationally. It's called Chatter: The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters, and How to Harness It, which uh, was chosen as one of the best new books of the year by Washington Post and uh, more recently by Amazon too. So this was an in-depth conversation about that little voice in our head why we have it in the first place, where it comes from, and then all the techniques and strategies around actually managing all the negative voices that seem to plague our everyday lives. So please, my friends, if you do love this episode, and I I have no idea why you wouldn't, Ethan is a great speaker. Uh, He has a lot of insight into this particular subject, so I, I wanted him to Uh, give you as much as possible in this conversation. Please share it around to your friends and family. Don't forget everything that you need is all in the show notes below in terms of watching the full video on YouTube, uh, leaving a five-star rating and review, which would be greatly appreciated. And also go and buy Ethan's book, Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters and How to Harness It. It's available everywhere. 
books are sold uh, here in Australia too. So all links in the show notes. Uh, Anyway, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to harness that little voice in our head that keeps plaguing our everyday lives as we dive into the story box and listen to the story, the wisdom and the advice from Dr. Ethan Cross. Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me. It's, uh, It's a delight to be here. I've been looking forward to chatting. Likewise, my friend, I was listening to all your other conversations that you've been on Dr. Rungan, Chatterjee's uh, podcast, and so many others. Uh, I love how you and Rungan went almost close to two hours <laughs> just talking about chatter, which is really, really good to actually listen to and absorb all the information in that conversation. But I sort of want to try and steer it a little bit differently today. So the first question I want to start uh, of this official conversation with and chattering and all that, um, is what does success look like for you? Huh? Well, are we talking about success in, in professional life or, or personal life or both? Let's do both. Is it different? Let's do both. Well, I, I, you know, I think success is about having, um, meaningful relationships that, uh, bring you joy and that bring others joy. I think success is about uh, being engaged on a daily basis, feeling like work is 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 fun and not not really a grind. And I think success is about having impact. And by having impact, I mean moving the needle in a in a really consequential way or or a profound way that is. Um, Helping people, certainly for me, that that has always been a guiding motivation. How can I use whatever talents I may have to to help other people and society more broadly? Uh, But it also means uh, having impact for me also means advancing knowledge. So learning about how this glorious thing that is the human mind, like how it works, it's still a giant mystery in many ways. And I think there are enormous opportunities to discover how it functions that just fascinate me. And so um, pushing along those different fronts, um, uh, I guess characterizes what what success uh, is all about. Uh, and I, 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 should, I should probably throw in my family there too, um, not as an afterthought, but um, success is also having a great family life and, and seeing those around me really succeed as well. Did you ever think when you were growing up that you would ever have the impact you're having today? Uh, you know, I didn't really ever think about, um, I, I, I didn't really contemplate. So I guess the answer to that question would be no. Um, but I didn't really contemplate impact when I was growing up where I grew up in a working class neighborhood of, of, of Brooklyn, New York. Um, you know, if you did well in school, you, you, there were like two tracks available to you. You became like a doctor. And I mean, the real kind of doctor, not the one that I am, like the one that has MD after your name, not PhD. I'm still reminded of that by some people in my family. So, you know, you became a doctor or you became a lawyer and those were the two paths available. And, and that was really it. And so I, I don't even, I don't know that I really had the ability to contemplate what impact was about until until I got to college and then graduate school and then, and then beyond. And, um, um, so, so no, I, I, I did not think I'd be doing, uh, what I'm doing now. I, I really didn't know what I'd be doing as I, when I was growing up. So speaking about your interest and your fascination with the human mind, the consciousness and all that sort of stuff, what age were you when that sort of started to, I guess, fester up in your mind and, interest you more? Well, you know, I've I've been thinking about the mind and how it works from a really, really young age. Uh, And by really young age, I mean, around the time I was three, because I had this, this unique dad who would talk to me about the human mind from a very young age. My dad was always really interested in, in things like meditation and Eastern philosophy. And he would talk to me like I, like an adult from the time I was a very young kid. And and to be honest, like it was kind of annoying when I was a kid, like, I don't want to talk about transcendental meditation or like enough of like going inside to tap into my feelings. I just want to play with my GI Joes and, and uh, you know, matchbox cars. But, 
But those conversations persisted and I absorbed lessons from my dad and the kinds of things he taught me about the mind and how it works. And I, 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 I certainly let those lessons guide me as I was getting older, for example, when bad things would happen, when I'd get rejected or get into an argument, I would introspect to come, come up with a solution to feel better and would usually be able to do that. But I never really thought about spending my life studying the human mind or doing so in order to help others until I got to college and took my first psychology class. And that's where a spark really ignited when I, I, I learned about this, the fact that many people benefit enormously from introspection, from turning their attention inward to tap into that inner voice, to make sense of their problems, innovate and create. This was an amazing tool that really underlies so many of the great innovations that our species has, 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 has made or had. But then for so many other people doing the exact same thing, introspecting was a source of so much misery, anxiety, depression, um, and all of their offshoots, what I call chatter, getting stuck in these negative thought loops. And so uh, when, I, when I came across that, those sets of findings, that's when I really started to think seriously about making a career out of studying the human mind. But to be honest, when I got, I went to graduate school, it was a bit of a leap of faith. I, I thought I wanted to do this. I still wasn't quite sure this was the path for me. I didn't really know what a professor actually did when I was in graduate school. And so, um, so I did listen to my intuition and it, it has served me well so far. We can be our own worst enemies at times, can't we? We can just overthink things too much. And that, that negative voice in our head often Times. It can be a, a still small voice that creeps up every every so often that sort of convinces us to do big things, big changes in our life. I've noticed this happen ever so often in my life and I've had to sort of catch myself at times. So I know exactly what you're talking about. This is why I'm very excited to be speaking to you about the topic in, in the first place. But one thing that sort of interested me the most is how your dad actually spoke to you about these, these conscious and big topics growing up. I mean, were you, firstly, were you a curious kid growing up? Did you ask a lot of questions? And then sort of my leading question uh, from that is, did you, what was the, the biggest lesson that sort of you took away from learning from your dad to, and then did that sort of carry over to when you were doing your research? Did you notice that there was a similarity to it? Well, um, so lots of great questions. When I think about myself as a kid, I, I was always very curious, but I was also, uh, my, my, my dad used to call me um, the observer. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I, 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 I soaked things up. I listened, I took things in. I don't know that I, um, I asked a ton of questions, certainly not like, my daughters now ask questions. Uh, I think I, I think I really just listened carefully. Uh, now I ask a lot of questions and, and talk a lot more. But but back then I was in reception mode. Um, it's interesting that I ended up doing research on topics that I spent so many conversations with my dad talking to him about that I'm doing research on a similar topic now. Uh, you know, maybe that was fate, uh, being primed to think about these things from a young age, but, but it was never a conscious thing in the sense of, oh, like, well, I talked about this with my dad and now I, I know this is what I want to do. Uh, I actually, as, as a side, I, I stumbled, how did I, people often ask, like, how did you know you wanted to do become a psychologist and, and research the mind and the brain. And for me, it was, it was actually a process of self-discovery in when I was in college, I was taking psychology classes and majoring in psychology and working in labs. Um, but, you know, there were so many things that, that you could do with your life. I was taking econ and class in international relations. Maybe I'll do something in that, in that part of the world. Um, but what I found happening was every time I would be, I'd be studying in, in a bookstore. And every time I take a break, I'd find myself going over to the section on psychology books and thumbing through them and sometimes reading them or buying them. 
And, and then I'd find myself walking with my buddies around campus and, you know, they'd be talking about, all right, so what bar are we going to tonight? And I'm like, have you thought about introspection? And I'd be like kind of annoying, but, but I would spend my, my, my spare time talking to my friends and thinking about these ideas. And, and at one point I had this realization that, huh, if I'm spending my spare time thinking about these things, why don't I get paid to do this? Why don't I spend my life thinking about these? And that's what really propelled me um, into the field. Uh, I, I will say just to come full circle, one thing I really valued about how my dad interacted with me was the fact that he he talked to me like I was an adult from a very young age. And that's not to say that, you know, we didn't wrestle and, and have a great time doing other traditional father-son kinds of things, but but there was there was never this attempt to dumb it down. There was, let me talk to you about real issues and make it clear what what he thinks matters. And part of that conversation was all about. No matter what you do, make sure it engages you and, and that you're ultimately trying to help other people. There are lots of ways to help, but, you know, try to aim for that. And I will say that that lesson has um, influenced how I parent. And, you know, whenever I, whenever I can get a walk in with my daughters, I take it and we talk about the world and I try to in, introduce different ideas and you know, half the time they roll their eyes and say, I'm, I'm bored. This is boring, daddy. Where's mommy. But you know, at other times I find that they, they engage. So we'll see what happens um, with them. I was uh, very much the same growing up. Uh, my, both my parents, they told me very young to be curious. It's not a bad thing to be curious. My grandfather, especially like him and I would have these deep conversations. I remember being eight years old when I got one of the most important lessons I've ever had in my life regarding procrastination. And another thing was uh, towards excellence and what excellence actually is. But he also used to say to me, if you don't ask, you don't get. So don't be afraid to ask. And what I'm, what I'm, That's right. what I'm interested by is speaking about curiosity and how curiosity of the world can sort of play a role in what we think. Do you believe that sometimes it's bad to be curious? Well, um, I think, I think curiosity can have a dark side in the sense that sometimes in a certain condition. So sometimes um, it's not clear what the answer is to a particular predicament. Why did my friend die? Why didn't someone else die? Uh, you can really try, you know, like get hit by a car and I'm making up an example here, but you know, there's a curiosity there. There's a search for an answer. And as hard as you try, it's, that's a, that's a situation unless you resort to certain kinds of, um, supernatural explanations, which a lot of people do. And for good reason, maybe we'll talk about why that is. It provides them with some certainty, but, but, but there are a lot of things in life that don't have answers. And uh, one of the things that, that I see um, defining people who are really resilient and, and really able to manage or chatter is being comfortable with that uncertainty. Like human beings love certainty. We love being certain about things. We love being in control. And when we're missing those elements, we frantically try to regain it. And, and that can often lead us astray because we can't always control things. And I think there's real relief that often comes from simply recognizing, you know what? I could do my best, but beyond that, it's out of my control. So if the curiosity is driving a person to find a solution over something for which there is no solution, and it just leads them to keep grinding away, I think that can contribute to chatter at times. Um, but on the whole, I, of course, deeply value curiosity. Uh, I, I think of myself as a very curious person. I think one of the, the glorious things about the business I'm in is that, you know, I often tell students like, if you're if you're curious about how people work, mm. come into the business. This is what we do. It's like this psychology, this is the science of how people work. And last I checked, we haven't figured it all out yet. 
And so if you want to test some ideas, you know, we'll give you the tools to do it. Which is a very exciting thing. The fact that we haven't figured it out yet. There's so many questions that still need to be answered, but one of my favorite words actually on, on the podcast is I probably say curious too much. You know, I'm curious about this because growing up, I was always a curious minded kid. Like I never got on well with people my own age. I go up to the adults and ask them these random crazy questions. Some of which I think they got very annoyed by. They're like, why are you asking me this question? Like, I don't, do you think I know the answer to it? Like, <laughs> like that sort of thing. Um, so I, I don't believe ultimately it's, it's necessarily a bad thing at all. Like that old saying curiosity, kill the cat or something like that. I'm like, where did that phrase come from? You know, like looking at that perspective and just shifting it to saying curiosity never hurt anyone. Like the only thing it, it, it like, and, and to your point with what you're saying is if you start thinking about all the negative too much, that's when it can become a danger to you, not to others, but to you, unless you start passing it on. But anyway, uh, I yeah. can go off, go off with Angie. I Well, no, I mean, to be clear, curiosity is, is a wonderful quality. And one way that I think about these different, I mean, I'm pretty sure curiosity is actually considered a virtue according to many, mm. many traditions, uh, like a, a defining positive feature of, 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 of what a person is like, like along the lines of being courageous and, and being honest and having self-control. Um, but there is, there is one, if we think deeply about what it means to be curious or, or have self-control or courageous, like these are virtues that serve us well in many, many circumstances, but there, there are usually going to be circumstances where that, that approach may backfire. And that doesn't mean that that approach carte blanche is bad. It just means that we have to be flexible in how we approach life and we have to be responsive to the, to the specific situations. Like there's probably a time to be like courage is like, I think many of us strive to be courageous, but you know, being a little too courageous might get you in trouble in the wrong situation. Like, you know, um, jumping off a bridge to see what it's like to, dive into a pool from a really high level, but you know, you break your leg doing so or worse because it's too, I mean, so you could easily come up with these examples where, where some of these virtues might not pan out for us that in no way indicts that quality as something that is, is bad. It just says that life is filled with all sorts of situations. And in my mind, the signature of being I guess this goes back to your first question. Successful in life is is really being able to recognize what's what's required of me in this situation, and then modifying your behavior and approach accordingly. And I think another point that you sort of mentioned during that explanation was around the sort of the spiritual side of things and why people sort of use the spiritual element if they can't really and get a question answered this side of life. And I'm, I'm always been fascinated by this. Why is that the case? Why is it, can we consider it sort of like a, a cop-out <laughs> in a way? No, I, I don't think it's a cop-out. Um, I think I want to put aside the metaphysical nature of, of religion um, and spirituality for a moment, because um I know, I know enough to say that there are lots of things that I don't know. And, you know, I don't know, you know, I don't know if supernatural forces exist or, or, or not. And, um, but putting that aside, um, one of the things that religion does, regardless of whether you believe in a higher power or not, is it gives you an explanation for lots of things in life that are uncertain. I mean, think about some of the, the things that are, that are most challenging to us. Like what happens when our loved ones die? What happens when we die? Um, why did something bad happen to someone else? Well, you know, we, what happens when we die? Like most religions have beliefs about afterlife. You go here, you go there, you do this way, you get this and that, right? So that's giving us an explanation that makes it not certain, but to the contrary, very, very certain. And that alleviates a lot of the chatter that, that often accompanies pondering these, 
these anxiety provoking existential issues. So, you know, chatter is getting stuck in those negative thought loops. Oh my God, I don't understand. What if this, what if that worry rumination and, and uncertainty fuels it. And so religion provides us with explanations that, that alleviate that, that, that uncertainty. Um, you know, another example is, is like belief in, in karma, right? Like things, why, like it's not satisfying to know that something can happen just by chance. Like, why did that person get by a car? It was, well, bad luck. Like that doesn't feel very satisfying. Well, it was probably karma. There was something that happened to them earlier in life or their past life, which influenced. So we're given these sets of beliefs that our culture is giving to us to help us manage the uncertainty that is inherent in life. And, and there's data which shows that people who are more religious and committed to those kinds of religious or spiritual practice actually have higher levels of well-being. So, um, you know, I think we've learned, we've been studying chatter for thousands and thousands of years. We weren't necessarily doing experiments on it in, in the way we do today. But I think in a certain sense, we were doing social experiments. We were developing tools, uh, rituals, and other practices that are really quite effective. And I, I talk about a bunch of these in, in my book. So I want to get to chatter in like right now, essentially. So in order to give people context to start off with, I have two questions. So first one is, uh, I hope people can follow along <laughs> with this, get a pen and paper out if you need to. But firstly, I want to start with where does chatter officially come from? Is it based around their emotions, feelings? Are we taught it from a young age? And then leading into that, it's sort of, what is what has been something the that has gone in your mind the chatter that's sort of you've been mulling over regarding a particular question that's sort of burning in your brain for a while that you haven't been able to get an answer to well so where does the chatter come from like most things uh, a little bit from your your genes a little bit from your environmental experiences growing up your parents your social surroundings or culture, and then a little bit from how those two combine. And what I mean by that is one of the really neat advances in science over the past decade is something called epigenetics. And it's the idea that our genes aren't independent of our experiences in life. And that actually having experiencing certain events in life can essentially turn on or off whether different genes are expressed and, and whether they actually impact us. So, so, you know, whether we experience, when we experience chatter, to what extent and why that's, that's determined by those, those two forces, um, genes, environment, and how they come together. Uh, and, and it's unique for many people, the triggers that the chatter triggers that you have are going to be likely different from the ones that I have. And, uh, although the nature of chatter is going to be the same, getting stuck in those negative thought loops, right? That's the structure of chatter. What you're perseverating over is likely to be um, different. What have I been experiencing chatter about um, lately? I, I wouldn't, well, the, I might push back on that question because I define chatter as a, def, it is a negative state. It is the dark side of the inner voice. Now, the inner voice can be can be a blessing. It can it has a gloriously positive side, which is using my mind and in particular language to silently reflect on a problem. May not come up with an answer, but I'm still playing with that idea. And I do that a lot in my business. And fortunately, I can say that uh, I haven't been experiencing chatter around a, a problem at work or an idea. Uh, I have I have been playing with that idea though in my head, I've been thinking about ideas. Uh, one of the ones that really intrigues me is this idea that there are cocktails of, of tools that people use to manage their chatter. And by cocktails, I don't mean the alcoholic variety. I mean, we know that on the one hand, we've evolved the capacity to experience this very harmful state, chatter. On the other hand, we've also evolved to possess a number of different tools. I talk about 26 different tools in the book that we can be used to harness this chatter. Science has done a really good job 
profiling how individual tools work. But the tools tend to be studied in isolation. So, you know, in my lab, we might study, hey, what's a healthy way of talking to yourself? One that can get you out of chatter. Um, you know, the little sidebar sneak peek if it is use your own name to coach yourself through a problem like you're talking to someone else that really does help people. But, you know, we spend a lot of time really drilling down into that one tool rather than looking at how does that tool interact with talking to other people and going out in nature and doing rituals. What we know from research that we're doing right now is that in daily life, people do many different things to manage their chatter simultaneously. They're not doing just one thing. And it's how the, those tools come together that are really driving, pushing the needle on people's chatter, turning it down, so to speak, turning the volume down. And so um, spending a lot of time thinking about how to study those, those cocktails, those chatter fighting cocktails, how do we study it? How do we help people identify the unique combinations of tools that work work well for them, given their unique makeup, psychological makeup? And um, but it's not chatter; it's it's fun self reflection. Mm. This is an interesting part. The moment you mentioned epigenetics, something that I haven't really studied too much about. I've got a lot of questions regarding that sort of side, uh, but. Um, interested in when does chatter officially begin like it does it begin when we are born when we enter the world or does it begin at a certain age well so um the chatter that i talk about in the book is verbally based and so um you you wouldn't expect it to um become activated until kids are are beginning to use language in a self-reflective way to, you know, they're capable of, of, of self-reflection. You know, when kids are born into the world, they're not necessarily self-aware. That develops, that's a milestone that occurs. Um, the exact date escapes me. But you would certainly want to have self-awareness and the ability to use words to describe your experiences. So, um, so, you know, I'm guessing in the first few years of life, um, kids start to experience emotion and then start reflecting on it. And then um, you, you probably start to see signs of it um, when kids are, are you know, in, 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 in school in the early grades. Mm. So speaking about the genetics side of things, does, does that mean like a person is born literally to have more negative chatter over the course of their life as opposed to another person like it's predestined for that person or is it more or less about their experience growing up that determines how that impacts their their voice in the head so to speak well it's both um there 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 are genetic influences that predispose us to engage in it more, but there are environmental experiences that also do the same thing. So growing up in particularly harsh environments has been linked with elevated levels of, of chatter and certain kinds of uh, unpleasant parenting styles can contribute to that too. Uh, and of course, as I mentioned before, those environmental experiences can actually uh, basically turn on whether on or off different genes, whether they're expressed or not, which can also have implications for our experience to chatter. So it's it's quite complicated, but there's an important but here that I wanna convey, which is just because you have a particular environmental experience, you know, early, early childhood experience that may make you more vulnerable or you have a genetic vulnerability, these are vulnerabilities that don't determine where you end up. Um, uh, you know, I, I've seen it through, you know, through research, but also through lots of anecdotal experiences I've had working in this space, talking to people, both from the science side and the personal side. The, there is enormous latitude for people to overcome vulnerabilities, to, to be resilient in the face of them, to, in a, in a very certain sense, create their own destinies. I think that's something that is important to anchor onto that belief, um, not just because it gives people hope that the future can be different than 
it otherwise appears to be, which I think in and of itself, having that hope can all, can be really, really powerful and mm. a, a type of chatter antidote on its own, but also because it's true because we, this amazing mind that we possess, it gives us the power to, if we know how to use this mind to control itself and by extension ourselves, you know, we, we've, it's, it's almost like we're born into this world with this amazing organ that is capable of all sorts of things. Like, you know, we can, we can figure out how to build spaceships. Literally we have figured out, like, uh, if you think about it, th this is the mind blower of mind blowers for me. And I, I will often bring this up, go back in time. At one point we were sitting around in loincloths worried about whether we'd be able to start a fire or find an animal to eat dinner. Fast forward several hundreds of thousands of years or more, and we've figured out not just how to blast off into the air safely and then land, but go into space and, and, and safely land a vehicle now on another planet, Mars, I'm referring to the Mars rover, and then drive around that planet and send video footage back to planet Earth. If that's not a testament to what the human mind is capable of, I don't know what is. Now let's think about the human mind in the context of chatter, right? Like we've got this state that we often struggle with. Many of us struggle with it. If there are huge costs associated with chatter, with getting stuck in these negative thought spirals in the, in the workplace alone, the World Health Organization recently put a price tag on anxiety and depression, which we know chatter can fuel. It was over a trillion dollars. It's a big, big cost to this. We can build spaceships to go to space, but we often struggle to manage these thoughts in our head. Um, what we know is that if you know how to harness the mind, you can manage these internal states. And so um, you just need to know how to manage it. Which is an interesting thing in of itself, how we have evolved over time to do these amazing things that we never thought were actually possible in the first place until someone actually said, hey, it is possible, let me show you. But yet there's so much mental health issues in the world today and we are struggling now more than ever, more than we have before. So I think this is why in today's day and age with your work in Chatter and helping people how to harness and fix the, the negative loops that we so often are plaguing our, our minds and causing us more harm than actual good in our life. I think it's, it's needful. So I guess leading on the mental health side of thing for a moment, I mean, this, it's an alarming statistic that millions of people and I mean, there's, I think there's another alarming statistic here in just Australia, the one in every four men, I think it is, commit suicide on a regular basis because they don't mm. feel like they're enough. The, the, what do you think is the main sort of negative thought that gets people to that point of, hey, I don't feel like I can live anymore? Well, you know, suicide um, is is often linked with with despair and hopelessness, and and the idea, the very opposite of of what we were talking about before, and um, and that's in part why I think it's so important for us to remember that the path we're on is not the path that we uh, are predetermined to always be on. That we can change things. Uh, I think having that awareness itself can be really empowering. Now that's not to say that the, the, the road to change is always easy. Sometimes it can be challenging. It can take a lot of time. Although at other times it, it can be um, uh, less effortful to affect change in our lives. It's just hard to predict that for different people. But, um, but I think the degree to which we can, we can develop a more hopeful view of the future uh, you know, that that's linked with lots of, of really good outcomes. And I think this where this conversation is going really underscores the importance of, of educating people about the mind, about how it works, because, you know, take someone who's really in the midst of despair. We don't teach kids. We don't teach adults necessarily about 
you know, what is depression? What is anxiety? What is this critical voice in your head? Why do you have one? Why do you sometimes feel this way? And if you do, what can you do about it? Like we have a lot of science that bears on those questions. And, you know, I'm certainly of the opinion that knowing about that science, just knowing about it can be really helpful in the same way, by, by way of analogy, that learning in school, how to compute a percentage is a skill that serves us enormously well throughout life. Like you go to a restaurant, you got to figure out how to make a tip, compute a tip. You use that knowledge. I think learning about what emotions are, how they work, how they can be managed and controlled, that's knowledge that should pay forward in massive ways, massive ways in terms of alleviating mental health burdens. Um, by massive ways, I mean helping people think and perform better at work and, and also by improving their physical health. So uh, I think as a, as a culture, there's a, there's a real opportunity for us right now to try to bring this information to people so that it is not buried in advanced level psychology classes where not everyone has access to it. Mm -hmm. And, and that was a big part of, of why I decided to write this book was to start that process of, of getting this information out there. You mentioned, I think before we started this, how this kind of information is not in actual schools aside from getting to university and actually studying psychology in particular. So I think that having books like yours and episodes like this one and the one they did with Rongen and all the other ones to dive deeper and have these conversations, I feel like people that do write notes, that do listen, I hope that it does help them. I really do. That's, that's, I'm internal optimist because <laughs> I struggle. Uh, you, you, yeah. Go you for and it. I are kindred spirits in that regard. Yeah, I, I appreciate uh, your message immensely because I struggled with all these negative voices, you know, sometimes still do. And I'm like catching myself. I use um, one of my favorite methods to catch myself when I do end up in a negative loop. I call it the cap method. So C stands for choice, A stands for acceptance and P stands for persistence. And it's about literally putting a metaphorical cap on all the negative and tightening it up with persistence just to say, I'm not going to... If, if a negative thought enters my brain and then I, I just choose to allow it to fester, then I'm persistently uh, uh, loosening the cap and allowing the negative to just, you know, climb to the surface until that cap is released and then boom, all, all hell breaks loose. But I always love how every single person can make the choice to accept what is in their life and they can change if they want to change. So, I mean, if a 24 year old can do it, so can you. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the, the cat method you're describing actually bears some similarities to some of the distancing tools I talk about in the book. And it, it, you're separating yourself from your thoughts. Here's one little quick, quick kind of um, crib sheet take home that that listeners might find useful. Um, you know, I'm often asked, like, do I ever experience chatter? I study it, you know, all these tools, you write a book on it, you talk about it to lots of people. So do you experience chatter? Do you ever experience a negative thought? And, um, and my answer is, yeah, uh, hello, I experience chatter. I'm a human being. I think most of us do. Um, it's not always, we're not always able to predict when we're going to experience chatter. Um, you know, by extension, I don't think we can control the thoughts that pop into our head. Right. Like I've been in this space for a really long time. Like I don't know how to predict what you're going to think about tomorrow morning. Right. That's still the mystery of the mind that is waiting to be discovered. So I don't think we can control what thoughts pop into our head. But what we can control is how we engage with those thoughts once they appear. And that's where there's a real opportunity for people to benefit from the kinds of tools that I talk about in the book. What they give us the possibility to do is, A, first of all, the, just talking about this topic, we now have an understanding of what chatter is. So once you identify, yep, chatter's coming, I, I'm in it, you can then make the commitment to be very deliberate about using specific tools. So for you, it's a cap. For me, it's distant self-talk, mental time travel, talking to another person, and going for a walk in nature. Like, 
And I, and what I have gotten really good at is nipping the chatter in the bud in the, in the instance that it's triggered. So it doesn't go on to fester at all. And, and I think the more we can help other people do that, the better we'll all be uh, as a society. I think you said it perfectly there. Ethan, I do want to be respectful of your time. Uh, two final questions for you, if you don't mind. So if I was to pick up a copy of your book right now and turn to any page, chapter, you name it, to get the most out of the book, which page or chapter would you recommend that I turn to? Oh, my goodness. It's like you're asking me to choose between my children, except there are 220 children or however long my book was. You know how much... Yep. Pain went into every sentence of that book. Um, yep. <laughs> what would be the most important? What would be the most important chapter? Um, I love asking uh, that question. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think the most important chapter might be the the final chapter, the conclusion. Not because it gives you any tools specifically. It's a recap that that you know, summarize everything because it really gives readers a message of, I hope, hope for uh, how to, how to leave the book and venture into their life with the idea, the knowledge that if they want to, they can avail themselves of this glorious toolbox of tools that exist for managing chatter. And it's really up to each and every reader to figure out which tools work best for them, um, given given their uniqueness. So, so probably that last chapter. So where can people buy a book and make sure they get a copy of it? Uh, they can buy it wherever books are sold, I'm told. Um, all the big book distributors, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, but um, also independent bookstores. And um, what was the second question there? Well, make sure they can get a copy. Oh, We'll make sure they got. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Much, I think it's the same question. <laughs> I just yeah, uh, phrased it differently. <laughs> got it. Got it. Um, yeah. So, so, so pick up a copy and um, I hope you enjoy it. And, and um, you know, the, the book I should say is it's a book that will give you these tools. They're, 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 they're summarized, but it'll also show you how these tools work in people's lives. So it's a really, a, it's a book about stories and also a book about the science that went into the, the discovery of these tools. So every tool I talk about is science-based. And I think that's really important because lots of people are, are searching for help out there. And lots of people are, are also attempting to provide it. And, you know, some of the non-science-based tools that exist out there are likely effective, but, but you really do need the science to know um, which ones have, have real merit. Um, and so, um, so you'll see that in the book. Well, I love stories, so I can't wait. And I kind of love science, so I can't wait to get my hands on a copy and read it and share it with everyone. Uh, Ethan, this is my final question for you. It's my all time favorite one. I ask everyone at the end, it's a hypothetical one, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic for the sake of argument, but they've been able to get it and show it to you on your hundredth birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? Hmm. Um, okay. You got to give me five seconds to contemplate that. Um, what would I want? And this has to be something that I said to someone. I said, I said, would be anything that you've said. Um, what sort of impact do you want it to have? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, lots of things I'd like for it to say. I, I would hope it's not a particularly short film. That might be a little depressing on my 100th birthday if it's my profound moment here. Um, you know, I, I, I do think there's so many important things in life, um, you know, but but the one message that I often come back to when I think about these kinds of um, these like eulogy exercises or deathbed exercises are uh, as, as 
cliche as it may be, um, you know, treat other people with dignity and respect and, and, and try to make their lives just a little bit better, try to contribute in some way to doing that. Um, you know, that's a message that I hope my daughters get from me. And I think if that's a message that, um, it was given to me by my dad and others. And, um, I think that's a message that has the potential to really improve conditions in, in society, which is something I care a lot about. So I, I, I guess I'd like this footage to somehow have me conveying that idea to people, you know, preferably with a great deal of eloquence and uh, a big crowd that's cheering and firecrackers going off in the background and um, you get the drift, but, but that would be the message. A great send-off message. Ethan Cross, thank you so much for your time today and for chatting with me on the Storybox podcast. Really do appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was a really fun conversation. So, I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the Storybox, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.